Good morning. How is everybody this morning? It's very good to see your faces this morning. Uh, I do like not staring at a lens this morning. Um, I think this is preferable. It's good. Very good. Mark, I'm just going to move this cable on you. Sorry. Um, yeah, really good to see you guys and be here this morning. I was just thinking as, as we're here worshiping together this morning in the same physical space, I believe this is the first time that I've actually seen Zoe Taylor in person. Isn't that crazy? Because um, you guys were, you know, busy in the midst of all the treatment and stuff when we first arrived, and then we went into lockdown. I was like, I'm actually seeing her in person as opposed to just on a screen today. It's cool. Um, it's cool to see all of your faces, though. And so um, I'm going to try and do as much eye reading this morning as I can. It's a little bit of a challenge because I was saying earlier to the guys, when people's, they wrinkle up here, they're either angry or they're really happy. And, and so it's kind of a little hard to tell um, what to expect in that moment. Um, we're going to look at what I think is actually just a beautiful passage of Scripture this morning, but it holds a warning for us. And I hope that as we go through this this morning that God really does speak to you. And so to that end, what I'd like to do is just take a pause right now. And I know we've already prayed several times, but I want to pause and ask you where you're sitting to just pray silently and ask God to speak to you this morning. And then I'll pray into the the message today. Is that okay? So I'll just give you like 20 seconds or so to just pause where you are and pray and ask God to speak to you. God, thank you that you hear these prayers this morning. And thank you that you are a faithful God who is able to answer them. Lord, for the people across this room who have said, Lord, please speak to me. Lord, I pray that you would speak. And for those who feel even unsure in that prayer, Lord, I pray that you would speak. May this not be just another moment where we spend time going through the motions of religion, but may this be a time where your Holy Spirit speaks to us. Thank you. Amen. I want to start with a question, and that question is asking you, have you ever been in danger and yet not realized the danger that you're in? Perhaps you've been somewhere enjoying something and not realized that right beside you is a hazard that you probably should be aware of. You see, life is full of danger, and what that means is that even in the best of circumstances, often we're only a step or a couple of steps away from disaster. There was a few years ago a picture that illustrated this fact perfectly, at least in my mind, and it was a picture that caught headlines around the world. I'll explain it a little bit before we put it up on the screen for you. Uh, we... In Australia, I guess, uh, well, let, let me give this a little context. In Australia, there was a mother who was waiting to pick up her older children from the bus, lived in rural Australia, and she was waiting there with her younger daughter and just taking some innocent pictures of her daughter. Well, let me put up the picture for you, which I sourced from ABC News Australia. If you look at this picture, 
the mother only realized later what was actually going on in this picture. Now, if you look closely, what you'll see is, yes, a cute, innocent toddler, but at her feet, slithering beside her, is a giant brown snake, aka one of the deadliest snakes in the world. Like, literally, they are on the top lists of any bad snakes to bite you, okay? And so, thankfully, in this story, mother, daughter were okay, even the snake was okay, he slithered away, uh, because they didn't realize what was going on until afterwards. But what a picture, what an image, really, in a lot of ways, of life. And the reason I say that is because it reminds me even of the passage of Scripture that we're going to look at today, and that's because... As we look at this story that we're going to look at today, it portrays this beauty and this innocence of this moment. It really is a beautiful story, and yet similar, and there's, I guess, some similarities to, to the toddler in that. You know, this toddler is innocent. She's, she's beautiful. She's just enjoying the moment. Like we're going to look at in this text, these people are beautiful and innocent in this moment. But when we zoom out and look at the greater context of Scripture, what we understand is that this story, this narrative, actually is in a moment of there's danger either side of it. And so before we look at the danger, you can bring that picture down. Thanks, Aidan. Before we look at the, uh, this particular story um, and the danger that surrounds it, I want to just look at the story for the story itself. And so we're going to go to Nehemiah chapter 8. I'm going to invite you to grab a Bible or be able to read along on your phone somehow. Uh, If you want to look up the text, it's Nehemiah chapter 8 is where we're going to be. And as you're turning there, let's make sure that we all are on the same page as far as the context is concerned. Nehemiah, as most of you know, is a leader who has been called back to Jerusalem to rebuild a wall. And, and what we've just read up to in chapter 7 is the completion in a lot of ways of that task. So Nehemiah has led these people to rebuild this wall, and it's actually happened miraculously quickly. It's been incredibly fast and in the midst of adversity. And they also have come to this moment in chapter 7 where they haven't just rebuilt the wall, but they've actually set up the doors, set up the gates. They've got people arranged to, to manage those gates. And they've even got Levites set up to organize the worship at the temple again. So in a lot of ways, everything's set. And so as we come to this moment, there should be in our minds at least as we read, okay, what's going to happen now? Like everything's kind of getting organized back to the way that it could and should be. What should we expect to happen next? And so we're going to read what happens next in verse 1. Verse 1 of chapter 8 of Nehemiah says this, And all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. And they told Ezra, the scribe, to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. Okay, let's just pause there for a a second. What's happening here is we have Ezra showing up for the first time in a long time. Actually, the first time in the book of Nehemiah. Ezra was obviously in the book of Ezra, which we studied at length. But here he is again. And Ezra, just to remind you, is the priest that has come back out of exile like Nehemiah. But he's this priest who knows and understands the law. And what we have here is Nehemiah, the governor, and Ezra, the priest, finally seen working together. We've got to imagine they've already been working together to this point, but it's the first time that it's kind of written down, and this is significant. And what they're doing together, Nehemiah and Ezra, these two leaders, the governor and the priest, 
is that they're bringing the people together for a very special purpose, and that is to hear God's word. And I want you to hear what happens next. Verse 2, it says this, So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women, and all who could understand what they heard, on the first day of the seventh month. And he read from it, facing the square before the water gate, from early morning until midday, in the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. And Ezra the scribe stood on a wooden platform that they had made for this purpose. And beside him stood, and I'm not going to even attempt to read all of these names, they're quite difficult, but if you scan down, you'll see these guys who are beside him on his left and on his right. And then in verse 5, and Ezra opened the book in the sight of the people, for he was above all the people. And as he opened it, all the people stood. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Also, Yeshua, Bani, Sherebiah, and again, I won't read all these names, but they helped the people to understand the law while the people remained in their places. They read the book from the they read from the book, from the law of God, clearly, and they gave the meaning so the people understood the reading. What we have here is Ezra on a purpose-built podium. He's elevated up onto this stage that they've built specifically for this purpose, and what we have here is quite interesting, is it's actually a very early example, I think, of expository preaching. Expository preaching is where the truths of God's Word are taken, and they're made understandable for a hearer. To put it another way, the truths of God are, are given, they're exposed for the hearers, and they're applied as nourishment or as medicine to those listening. Expository preaching is both about hearing and understanding. And here we are, two and a half thousand years, roughly two and a half thousand years later, still doing this. Here we are today, opening God's Word and hoping to clearly give it some meaning and understanding. As we read through this passage, I love that there's a couple of emphasis that we see here. One is that everyone's engaged. I don't know if you noticed, but it's the men, the women, and everybody who could understand. Presumably, that's like little ones who can understand. The second thing is the importance of understanding. As you read through several times, it says, so that they understood, so that they understood. And then at the end, it talks about giving a sense, how there's, there's these men who are coming around to say, hey, are you understanding? They're amongst the crowd teaching what is going on. And so as God's word is impressed upon the people, how do they then respond? Well, if you read on, again, you'll see with me. Verse 9, it says this. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, Go your way, eat the fat, and drink sweet wine, and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready. For this day is holy to the Lord. 
and do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be quiet, for this day is holy. Do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and drink and send portions and to make great rejoicing because they had understood the words that were declared to them. So how do they respond? Well, they're broken. Firstly, they're broken. They weep. As they hear God's law and as they look at their lives and even their ancestors' lives and assess where they are, they're like, wow, we have done poorly in following God's word. But secondly, they are joyful. They joyfully feast. If you read verse 10, it explains exactly what they're to do. They're to eat. They're to drink. They are to share. I love that. Anyone who's not ready, share with them. And then they are to feast. It's interesting if you read on, they're actually, the feast that they're celebrating specifically in this moment is the Feast of Booths. And if you read verse 17, it says that this Feast of Booths has not been celebrated like this since the time of Joshua. That's really early on in the time of Israel. That's pretty early after it was first instituted. I mean, even King Solomon, the great King Solomon or King David, they didn't celebrate it in the same way. And so they have this moment of both brokenness and joyfulness. If you read on into the next chapters, which are a part of what we're studying today, it's a lot of material, chapters 8 through 10. But if you read on, what you find in chapters 9 through 10 is that there are three things that happen. And thankfully, they all start with C. I love it when you find things like that, right? Uh, They firstly consecrate themselves. They secondly confess And then thirdly, they covenant with God. Let's talk about each of these really quickly. They consecrate. That means they set themselves apart. If you read on into chapter 9, you find that the men and the leaders of the Jews, they pull aside and say, okay, we've heard God's word. We want to live in a way that honors him. What do we do? So they consecrate themselves. They pull aside. Secondly, they confess. They acknowledge their shortcomings. And they don't just own their own sins, they actually own the sins of those who have gone before them, both men and women who have lived before them, their ancestors. Now, if you read through some of their confession, it actually turns into a prayer in chapter 9. And Bethany read some of that for us. I don't know if you noticed that scripture that she read, but it's a beautiful prayer. She just read a portion of it. The whole thing is great. I'd encourage a reading of it in chapter 9. After they confess, they move into covenanting with God, which is actually the portion that Bethany read, where they're going from confession into a covenant. Now, what is a covenant? That's a word that we throw around in church a lot. A covenant is to make a solemn, binding promise, and specifically in this instance, to God. It's a solemn, binding covenant, a promise, sorry. One of the ways that's been helpful over the years for me to think about it is is something I borrowed from Tim Keller, the pastor from New York, in that he says that a covenant is a, a blend, a stunning blend of both law and love. That's how he describes it. And I think that's really helpful because if you think about it, without law, without specific agreements, you cannot covenant. But also, without love, without any sort of relationship, you cannot covenant. A covenant is built on both relationship, love, that is, and laws, things that you're agreeing to. 
And without both of those pieces, a covenant will fall apart. And what we have here in this chapter, chapter 9 and on into chapter 10, is the people saying, God, we promise that we will covenant with you. We will love you and we will keep your laws. We are going to do both. In fact, they're so earnest about this. If you read verse 29 of chapter 10, they take on this oath. They take on a curse saying, we solemnly swear to do this, God. Now, I want to make something very clear. That is that I believe that this particular passage is one of the most beautiful moments in Israel's history. I don't just mean in the book of Nehemiah and Ezra. I mean in all of Israel's history. And the reason that I say that is because these people seem to be genuinely broken. They are earnestly desiring to follow God wholeheartedly. You know, reading this story actually makes me think of Psalm 51. King David wrote some words in Psalm 51. I'm just going to flip over there. And in verse 17 of Psalm 51, this man after God's own heart, David, says this. He says, The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit and a broken and contrite heart, O God. You will not despise that. And as I read this particular section of Scripture in Nehemiah 8 through 10, I can't help but think of that. They're doing this. Collectively, as a nation, they are broken before God. I also think of Psalm 51 because uh, as we're reading in Nehemiah, they're saying, hey, the joy of the Lord is your strength. If you look at verse 12 of this Psalm 51, it says, restore to me the joy of my salvation. This idea of brokenness and joy is something we see throughout the Scriptures. And so I want for us to pause and, yes, to acknowledge the beauty of this moment. But simultaneously, I desire for us to step back and to actually see the bigger picture of what's happening in this moment. And as we do that, it's not to lessen or to take away from this beautiful story. In fact, there are lessons that we can learn from these verses. However, what I want us to do is to step back and to see the danger in the back of the picture. And the way that we can do that is actually by examining the greater historical context of this particular moment. These chapters, in a way, seem to capture what we could describe as a pendulum swinging moment. Now, what is a pendulum? Well, thankfully, I brought a little prop to kind of help us here. If you look up pendulum on Google, what it will tell you is a weight hung from a fixed point that can swing freely. Okay, so I brought this along with me. We've got a pendulum. It's a, it's a fixed point and a weight, right? You get the idea. You guys understand what a, what a pe pendulum is. Another way that Google actually goes on and defines that is to say that it's also this word pendulum is used to refer to the tendency of a situation to oscillate between one extreme and the other. And this is the point that I'm making here. What we have here in this moment seems to be a moment where Israel's love for God is in the right place. It's in the right place. But what we also know is that for hundreds of years, it hasn't been. It's been in a place of rebellion. They've had wayward hearts. The reason we know that is they've been confessing it themselves. And the biblical story tells us of king after king who is, has rebelled against God and against his commands. 
And so we know that they have been in this whole, I guess you could even say centuries of off and on rebellion towards God and towards his commands. But what we also know is that in the coming years, Israel is actually going to swing from this place of rebellion to this place of religious rule following. How do we know that? Well, soon after Nehemiah, Israel enters into a time known as, and this is a hard word, the intertestamental period. I always struggle with that word. It's the period of silence, the 400 years before John the Baptist and Jesus come onto the scene. And when they do come onto the scene, what do we find? Well, we find scribes, we find teachers of the law, we find religious political parties called the Sadducees and the Pharisees. We find strict keeping of Sabbaths and festivals. We find that these guys have layered rules upon rules to try and honor God. And when Jesus shows up on the scene, he has to say to these guys, hey guys, all these rules, they're not working. They're not fixing your broken hearts. And so as we look at this beautiful moment in Nehemiah 8 through 10, it is, yes, a beautiful story, but the greater context is a warning to us. The warning is that we can make all the covenants with God that we want, but we always tend to break them. And the reason we do that is because we want to move towards being in rebellion like Israel in its previous history, where we act contrary to what we've promised God, or we move towards loveless, religious rule-following, like Israel moved into after this moment. Now, remember earlier I said that a covenant is both law and love. What I'm stating is this, that our broken sin condition leads us to break our covenant with God by either disregarding the law or by losing our love, by trying to keep his law but just doing it out of rote duty instead of out of a place of love. You see, if we lose love or if we lose the law, the covenant falls apart. And humans, when it comes to God, are covenant breakers. No person is able to keep covenant with God except for one, and that is Jesus. He alone did not sin. And yet he went to the cross to pay for our sins, to pay for our covenant breaking. That was so that through his death, through his covenant keeping, we also may be able to be made right with God. And that is good news. If I was to put this another way, I could say that we have a heart problem. Our hearts tend towards rebellion or religion. But God doesn't want either of these for our hearts. He wants our hearts to be broken and joyful like the people that we read about in this story, and not to be broken and joyful just for a few weeks, months, or even years. He wants our hearts to be eternally true to Him. And this is not possible without a heart transplant. We cannot fix our hearts ourselves. 
that what Jesus does for us through the cross and what's described even in the Old Testament is exactly that. Did you know that in the book of Ezekiel, about 150 years before what this story we're reading in Nehemiah, Ezekiel promised that somebody would come and fix our heart problems, fix our rebellious or religious hearts. Ezekiel 36, I'll read it for you. Verse 26 says this, And I, it's God speaking, will give you a new heart, speaking about what Jesus was going to do for us, and a new spirit, I, see that emphasis, will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and to be careful to obey my rules. And so no matter where you may be sitting spiritually today, I believe that I'm speaking to all of us. I'm warning you. I'm pointing to the danger lurking in the background of the picture of our hearts. You may be neck deep in rule breaking. Maybe some of you, even in this room, are running from God with how you're acting and how you're living. Others of you may have your fill right now of rule following, of just religiously doing the things that you know you ought to do. Some of you may even be experiencing a beautiful moment where you're open to God, open to His will and His plan for your life. No matter where you may be on that pendulum, I want to ask you, where is your heart? And has your heart had a transplant from Jesus? Because no matter where you are on that scope, whether you're in a place of rebellion or a place of religious rule-keeping or even a place of rightful openness to God, you cannot stay in that right place with God without heart surgery. Israel's history makes that so emphatically clear to us. Your heart will drift. Your heart will wander. And so the call today is to come to be, yes, broken and joyful like the people we read about in Nehemiah 8 through 10. But the difference for us in these New Testament times is that we are able to stay in the right place because the place that we come to is at the foot of the cross. And there we can enjoy the new heart that Jesus has given us. As that new heart beats within you, the implications of this heart surgery are far-reaching. It pumps new life, new vision, new values through our veins so that we can become new persons, ones shaped into the image of Christ. The New Testament and church history is full of of examples of people, multitudes of people who have experienced this radical change. And so will you join their ranks? Have you experienced the fullness of life that comes from having a new heart given to you by Jesus? Let's let go of religion. Let's flee from rebellion, and let's embrace the Father and His love for us. Let's truly live 
with a new heart, loving God and living for Him. I'm going to pray. God, we just acknowledge together something that we acknowledge quite often, which is the fact that our hearts are prone to wander, as the old hymn says. And God, we cannot stay in a right, beautiful, broken place of joy with you unless by your grace you enable us to be there. And God, we say together, that's where we want to be. Would you do a work in our hearts today, God? Lord, help us not to run from you in rebellion, from your work, from your plans for our lives. And in the same breath, God, help us not to just religiously try and appease you by doing the things you, we think that you want us to do. God, what we're asking is for you to take our hearts of stone and help us to love you, genuinely love you, every day, every minute of our lives. And we acknowledge our inability to do this for ourselves. And so, God, we're opening our hearts to you, even in this moment, to say, soften us, God, bring healing, bring wholeness, bring lives, God, that are honoring to you. Thank you, God. Amen.